Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're, uh, well, we're celebrating 10 years of the podcast with an episode about time travel. 10 years, girl. Yes. Yeah. Who would have thought it? Yeah. Uh, not me. <laughs> <laughs> We've come a long way since the shed. Ah, well, maybe not geographically. Uh, so, for listeners who uh, don't get that reference, when we began, we started in a garden shed in my garden when I used to live in a farm cottage, with the uh, the three of us huddled around the very iMac that I'm recording on today. Uh, so, <laughs> this is still going, and now we record in a very different way now, but uh, it's the same show. Although, have you still got somewhere at your new place? Have you still got the previously mouldy stall? The wooden stool that we used to sit the microphone on. I do have it. The mould has been, Aww. it's no longer mouldy. It's nice and clean. It's all good. It's quite happy in my sitting room. You'd have to refresh my memory, Paul. When we moved indoors after you moved house, mm. I remember we had that hideous arrangement for a while where we had the stool, and I think it was the same stool, wasn't it? That, or was it a chair that we then stacked a whole pile of books on top of so that we get the single microphone we use, the single Yeti microphone. The Yeti, yeah. In omnidirectional mode at yes. face height for us. Was that the same stool we used or? I'm guessing it probably was because it's it's got quite a small footprint. It's a tall wooden stool. Yeah, and I think, as you say, we just balanced a load of stuff on top of it and then sat the Yeti on top of it, and we all stood around that in this very room that I'm <laughs> in now, I think. Uh, well, in a few different rooms in my present house. I've still got the Yeti on my own desk here as well. Oh, my God. Matt's now holding up for viewers at home. <laughs> Marvellous. I mean, it did a pretty good job at the time, but mm -hmm. I can't remember how many episodes we recorded before we got the Yeti. I think we had some other microphones. We recorded 40 episodes on either the built-in microphone on your iMac or this cheap condenser cardioid microphone that I picked up a while back. Yeah. Both of which were pretty awful. And then we upgraded to the Yeti because yeah. the sound quality on that, or at least not, not even the sound quality, but the ability to pick up all of us, the omnidirectional mode in particular really helped with that. But it still wasn't ideal. And then we recorded another 31 episodes before we got our current kid. Yeah, yeah. And then during the pandemic, we started recording remotely, and that made a huge difference to the sound quality. I'd say almost as much as getting the new kit, because being able to edit in isolation actually really makes things a lot easier. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I used to find that when we did like interviews with people, and you'd get the their feed, and it'd be like, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I feel like we're getting into uh, stuff that only podcasts are going to be interested in. But also over the, the 10 years of the podcast, we bought out the Blasphemous Tome, which has been quite a big thing for me. I've always kind of wanted to do a 
fanzine and this gave us a platform to put out a fanzine mm. and i very much enjoyed doing that that's that's great fun and i think by the time this episode goes out people will be uh had chance to enjoy the new cover by john sumrow which is bloody marvelous by the time this goes out as well it should only be a few weeks before the next tome goes out as well the one with that cover oh yeah but yeah there's a lot of great things from personal point of view that have come out of the podcast during this time one of the things that always surprises me is the community that's built up around the podcast and how lively that is particularly on our discord server it's become something of a running joke on the discord server that we get a lot of people on there have been attracted by the fact that it's a call of cthulhu community and are surprised to learn that there's a podcast mm. but at the same time there's a lot of lively discussion there about the podcast and the things we talk about and it's a constant source of amazement and delight to me just how engaged and interesting that community is and how many wonderful people there are in it. Mm. And our partnerships with other podcasts we've done over the years, I think, with The Smart Party and Dirk the Dice from The Grognard Files. And How We Roll and Ain't Slate Nobody. And yeah, exactly. And Into the Darkness. That's been great fun too. Yeah. I do like the way that... I assume that this is the case in other forms of podcasting as well, but the fact that there is such a community of podcasters. Oh, uh, sorry, in that list, we've got the Miskatonic University podcast as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. Who really inspired us to get going in the first place, and our good friends at Modern Mythos. And so the fact that there is this community of podcasters who... I mean, not just appear on each other's shows, but kind of support each other with promotion and just, I think, create this, this sense of community between the various podcasts is fantastic. And for those of you out there that wanted to get your uh, mitts or tentacles on a copy of the Blasphemous Tome issue 11, you have until the end of the month to sign up to us on Patreon. Yeah, and if you want to get a hard copy, a print copy... Signed by myself, Scott, and Matt, then just join us on Patreon at the $5 level, and I will be filling envelopes with them at the end of the month. But aside from that, everyone backing us on Patreon will get the PDF version. And those at the $3 level get a voucher for the print-on-demand copy by the end of the month. Yeah, that's generally the case. Yeah, it just depends when we've got that proof for the print-on-demand copy. But uh, yeah, yeah, they'll get uh, a code for a discount-priced version of the print-on-demand. And this issue will contain a full Call of Cthulhu scenario uh, written by myself called Blackshade, some elements of which I guess may be relevant to this episode, but we'll try to avoid spoilers. And as this episode goes out, GM signups have just opened for the next weekend with good friends. This, of course, is the gaming convention, the online gaming convention, organised by our lovely listeners over on our Discord server. If you'd like to offer a game for the next weekend with good friends, GM signups will run through to the 15th of June 2023. The convention itself takes place between the 7th and the 9th of July 2023, that's Friday through Sunday. 
Games will run 24 hours a day during that period because, well, we have listeners from all over the world. So if you fancy running a game, please do check out the link that I'll put in the show notes over on BlasphemousTomes.com. And now on to our main topic, time travel in Call of Cthulhu. Well, with the podcast reaching its 10th birthday, doesn't feel a day over nine years and 11 months, time is very much on our minds. We thought this might be a good excuse to discuss the role of time travel, especially in Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu Mythos. Well, unless we discover we've already done that and are just reliving this episode over and over and over and over and feeling like my life between 8.30 and 5 Monday to Friday. Oh boy. Well done on cheering everyone up, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> we can rely on you. I am always a, a bright ray of sunshine in everyone's life. Yes, in a grey world, Matt's there. Time travel is a common element in the mythos, from Mythians to time gates. As well as taking a look at these examples, we'll also look outside of the mythos, seeking inspiration from other media. And then we'll try to figure out how we'd make all of this work at the game table. Hmm. So uh, time travel is a is a big thing, isn't it? It's used in all sorts of different ways, and we're going to try and unpick a few of those as well as we can. Like, does it just mean physically traveling through time? We're kind of doing that right now. <laughs> we are. Yes. yes. Oh, God. Yeah, time travel in media, in myths, in legends, uh, has been around for as long as people have been telling stories, but it's meant a lot of different things and been handled in a lot of different ways. And then we get into modern physics and ideas about time travel and the nature of time and space there. I studied a fair amount of physics up to university level, and I still feel completely unqualified to talk about it. So I'm probably going to avoid a lot of the scientific stuff because I know enough to know how little I know. And I was hoping you were going to explain special relativity. If you want, I can try, but you won't like it. <laughs> it's all relative. Done. <laughs> I mean, I guess in media and largely sort of thinking about Films and TV here often is physical movement through time, often back through time. Sometimes it's time loops. I'm looking at you like Groundhog Day, being the, the poster child for that, I would say. So not the origin. There are some fantastic examples of time loops that predate Groundhog Day that probably influence Groundhog Day, but that's just the one that everyone remembers. And sometimes it's just psychic travel through time, right? Sometimes it's just like mm. looking back as if looking through through a telescope almost, looking back at scenes as if you're looking at visions of, of the past. A view from the hill. And there's also the form that is probably the earliest type of time travel we see in myths and legends and fiction that I sort of struggle to perhaps see as time travel, but... I was looking through the Wikipedia article on time travel ahead of doing this, because of course I did. And one of the things that they were pinning down as, as the origins of time travel in popular culture is people falling asleep for long periods of time and waking up in the future. You know, the classic example from popular fiction being Rip Van Binkle, but this idea that, yeah, you 
travel through time through effectively going into suspended animation and waking up in a future age. That to me doesn't feel like time travel, but I guess it sort of ties in with some ideas of what we see in science fiction with uh, suspended animation and perhaps generation ships and people effectively traveling through time at different speeds because some people are in suspended animation perhaps wake up when other people are decades older and they're still the same age as they were when they went into suspended animation and so i guess i guess you can see that as a type of time travel it's not something i've ever really seen in call of cthulhu or the mythos though you say rip van winkle being the obvious example my mind instantly goes to ash at the end of army of darkness Oh, I slept too long! (laughs) I mean, I guess like Matt said, we're time travelling anyway. We are linearly going through time, minute by minute, day by day. So travelling forwards in time, to me, doesn't seem so exciting. There is the idea that, wow, it would be interesting to go forwards uh, like 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, just to see what culture will be like, what life will be like, what things will be like. I kind of feel like that's almost a uh, an intellectual interest, whereas going backwards in time just feels so much more emotional, seems to have so much more emotional resonance to me because you can go back and you can see perhaps people that you knew that have passed away or you can see yourself as a child or, you know, there mm. are so many things that tie in perhaps with the sense of nostalgia but also just that sense of being able to go back and touch things that have now gone that meant something in your life or that perhaps that you experienced or that you'd like to experience you know perhaps you'd like to go back to i don't know shakespearean times or whatever or you know it might be before your life but there's that that yearning for the past and that interest in i mean history is a massive subject right but Mm. the future isn't a massive subject so we don't know what's in it i mean there's there's we're always sort of planning for the future, but we can't sort of catalogue it like we do, or like we attempt to with the past. Some of the examples as well we see of travelling into the future are perhaps less than ideal. One of my favourite time travel books, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but I don't think it's a book that many people have read, and it's not the biggest spoiler I could give for the book, but there's a fantastic novel by Michael Marshall Smith, his first novel called Only Forward. It's a weird book. It's a very, very weird book. It, It starts off feeling like an almost whimsical Douglas Adams take on science fiction and ends up as kind of Clive Barkerish horror. But there is this element of time travel in it which is explained by the title, Only Forward, where the, the protagonist discovers a mechanism whereby he can jump in time, but it only goes forward. There's no going back once mm. you do so. And I guess a big theme of it is the, the sort of isolation that that leads to, that he ends up in a very different, very strange, you know, quite, as I said, whimsical world, but it's not his world. And he is now completely cut off from everything that made him him before and has had to reinvent himself in this new world. And that's the aspect of moving forward that I think 
Yeah, it's it's nice to think about being able to jump forward and sort of see, yes, you know, this is how we end up. This is you know, how technology goes. Maybe see whether the human race is going to survive the next 50 years, that kind of thing. But, but at the same time, you know, this idea of, yeah, all right, you've done that, but you're stuck there now. Mm. That seems less appealing. This is casting my mind back a long way now, back to when I was in school. I remember reading what I guess at the time you could classify as a young adult book. Pretty certain it was called Strange Attractors and that that had a similar kind of mechanism where you could only time travel forward so that there was, I remember a couple of key scenes where there's the main protagonist uses this device to jump forward about five minutes, trying to evade a series of people who were chasing him, thinking, well, if I jump forward five minutes, they're going to think I've gone further. So how long are they going to wait around? But there was some mechanism where it was just pure chaos if they went backwards. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I'll have to see if I can dig out a copy of it or find a copy on eBay or something, because I remember it being surprisingly good at the time. I mean, also, like, in the real world, travelling forward in time, aside from just like what we said about ourselves travelling forward, travelling forward in time is a, is a real possible thing, hmm. whereas travelling back, not so much. So, I mean, they've, they've done experiments sending atomic clocks around the world in a commercial airliners and found that the time recorded on them is different to the time on the clock that was mm. left stationary so if you're moving at high speed there's this time dilation effect well high speed or or you're located near like really high gravity there is a time dilation effect for the speeds that we can achieve even with like jetliners it's like minuscule we're talking like nanoseconds it's not something you're going to recognize but it's there so there's there's mm. i mean there's a number of science fiction stories aren't there from the well i guess from the 50s onwards where where this was sort of picked up on where people have like gone off in a spaceship and then come back to earth and to them it's like maybe a few months have passed but on earth it may be decades have passed you maniacs you blew it all up <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a real proven scientific effect I think the classic from science fiction for that is probably Joe Holderman's The Forever War, where it has these people going off and fighting wars and time dilation as a result of the relativistic speeds they're travelling at, meaning that they're living out of sync with the rest of the world. Mm. And there was another novel I read a few years back, The Sparrow, by Mary Doria Russell, which takes a slightly less nihilistic view of, of relativistic effects in space travel. If I remember correctly, I mean, it's a while since I've read it, but the idea is that we discover that there are radio signals or some signs of intelligent life coming from a planet orbiting Proxima Centauri, so four light years away. And the Jesuits decide to send a mission out into it and do so by hollowing out an asteroid and slapping big rockets on it and accelerating it. And of course, you know, with it being four light years away, that is um, a long, long distance to travel. Mm. But the idea is that because of the the subjective experience of time from the people travelling at near relativistic speeds within the asteroids, that it then becomes a much shorter journey for them than for the rest of the world. That well, it might take I think you know twenty or thirty years or whatever from our point of view. That you know from their point of view, I think it takes months. Yeah, 
which was an idea I'd not really thought of in those terms before, that time dilation then sort of potentially makes long-distance space travel more feasible, but obviously then there's all sorts of questions about the energy involved to get up to that speed and so on. And yeah, it's, it's more of a conceit for the story than hard science. So the concept being, as you approach the speed of light, time slows down until it stops yeah. for the person traveling. I read this thing. So if you were to accelerate at 1G, it would permit humans to travel the, across the entire known universe in one lifetime. And I'm like, well, what does 1G mean? It equates with an acceleration of about 22 miles per hour for each second that elapses. 9.8 meters per second per second. But I mean, what does that mean? I, I can relate to 22 miles per hour. I've been in a car that accelerates fast, and we're talking about that already, aren't we? But it doesn't yeah. stop accelerating at that speed. That's the point, yeah. If you're in a car that accelerates 0-60 in three seconds, you, you know about it. But imagine doing that for a year. I mean, that would be quite something. But man, you would be going fast by the end of that, wouldn't you? Of course, the reason they've chosen 1G as the acceleration there is because that's the the pull that we all feel the whole time just being on the Earth. So I guess the idea there is that if you were standing up in a spaceship that was accelerating at that rate, it would just feel like standing right where you are at the moment or sitting right where you are. So it would feel natural. So, yeah, I mean, you do have a fairly good idea of what that feels like. And this is actually, if I remember correctly, something of a plot point in the Expanse books. Not that they accelerate up to those incredible kinds of speeds we're talking about, but the ships in that use drives that can accelerate at a significant percentage of g as they travel around the solar system. And this basically allows them both to get through the solar system itself, not beyond, at a fairly decent pace. But it also means that they have the feeling of being under some degree of gravity at the same time. But going back to that idea that you were talking about a moment ago, and I'm going to have to draw upon my more than half-forgotten memories of what I learned about relativity back in university. And I could be horribly wrong here, but my understanding is that the closer you get to the speed of light, the more energy is required because your mass effectively increases. By the time you get up to the speed of light itself, you'd require an infinite amount of energy to get there. But even getting to speeds that are close to that requires huge, huge, huge amounts of energy, more than you could realistically ever produce through means that we understand. Dumbfounded looks from everyone around the screen. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Individuals may get some thing with this for a Call of Cthulhu scenario, but I think going into the future, um, unless you can travel back again, it doesn't inspire me so much. So I guess what inspires and excites me about time travel is two things. One is time loops, and one is actually going back in time to another time. 
So should we get into a bit of that as opposed to traveling forward? Well, let's start with going back in time then. Yeah. Because that seems to follow on directly from what we were talking about. And dear God, is this complicated science aside just the logistics of it from the point of view of the logic of time travel and dealing with paradoxes there's a reason why you don't tend to see too much of it in gaming because gamers like rules gamers like logical consistency gamers like to be able to work out what exactly is going on. And here we're dealing with so many unknowns and complications and so on that you have to be really careful about pinning down what exactly the consequences of traveling back in time are in terms of causality and, as like I say, paradoxes and so on. It's, It's a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say gamers, I'd say people. But gamers in particular, because we're talking about gaming and the Mm. application to gaming here, but it's one thing if you're writing a piece of fiction to think through all the implications of going back because you're in complete control of that. But in a gaming situation, you're negotiating that effectively with a group of other people and coming to a shared consensus about what these rules and effects are. And that's where it becomes really messy because everyone's going to have a different idea of what these complications are going to involve. Almost always with time travel, whether it be in films or TV, it leaves itself very open to criticism on that front, I think. Well, you know, if that happened, why didn't this happen? And if he did that, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he go back before that happened to change it again? Hmm. It just opens up so many contradictions or possible plot holes that some uh, stories manage that very well, very effectively, and some, you know, some less so, I think. But it is, it is a very difficult thing to handle effectively. I think if you're going to have people traveling back to the past, you effectively have to have constraints and complications there, both, I think, from a logical point of view, but also from a narrative point of view, just to stop those situations where is yes, all right, we can just keep redoing this over and over again until we get it right, so therefore there are effectively no stakes. From a narrative point of view, that's not very interesting. So Matt, what would you say represents time travel well in terms of, well, let's just call it media? Well... I think it has to have a blue box, really, doesn't it? Oh, I was going to say, it's got to be, hasn't it? <laughs> For you. There's that, and there's a few others. We like sure. For TV, Sapphire and Steel has always been a favourite of mine yeah. as well. And there's a good few instances in Star Trek. I'm looking at you, Trials and Tribulations. I mean, what do you think about Doctor Who then and how it handles <laughs> the whole time travel thing? Because that's pretty integral to Doctor Who, isn't it? Well, it depends on who your showrunner is and if they give a shit about canon or not, really. Yeah, there's certain instances where they couldn't get their story straight, and there's a few inconsistencies. Not many. In the original series, there's only really like a handful of examples that you could point to to say, well, hang on a minute, this contradicts this. But yeah, just don't talk about the newer series, the better. (laughs) But Doctor Who relies an awful lot on this idea of there being what is it fixed points in time what do they call them but these points that can't be changed oh that's that's new series bullshit 
Yeah, but I can see why they've done that, because it does, again, place that constraint on there that sort of says, right, well, why doesn't the Doctor just keep going back and changing things over and over again? Why doesn't the Doctor just Mm. fix all these big problems that have happened? And it's sort of saying, well, because they can't. Well, they can. They address that in Pyramids of Mars when Sarah Jane asks, okay, why don't we just go back to 1980 or leave? and said, well, we've got to stop Sutek from destroying the world. Well, he didn't do it in the 1920s, did he? And then the Doctor takes her forward to show what the world would be like in that timeline if it continued on without their action. So they've already addressed that, which, again, this whole... So many points of so-called canon and the whole rewriting of the show in the modern series just winds me up so goddamn much. (laughs) Well, it must be a a very difficult thing to manage as someone coming to write another Doctor Who story if you are dealing with some issue of the past rather than just some alien planet. If you're dealing with Earth's past, it must be difficult to integrate that with all the things that have gone before in the series. Again, there's moments where they adeptly work that in. Going back to the Hartnell era, there's an episode called, or a series called The Chase, where you have essentially the TARDIS being chased around time and space by a Dalek time machine. And in one instance, they land on Earth. In fact, quite a lot of the vignettes, they land on Earth because, hey, it's cheaper to do sets on Earth than it is in space. Mm. They land on this boat in the middle of the ocean and they wait their prerequisite time and then they jump on. And then the Dalek machine turns up and it scares everyone on board to jump overboard. And then you get a nice little pan down to the name of the ship saying the Mary Celeste. Right. They put their own spin on why certain events happened in history, but they don't necessarily change the events of history. And wasn't it also the case that the Doctor didn't really have that good a control over the TARDIS? Originally, yeah. Yeah. Well, up until the Three Doctors, really, up until that point, they always used it as a MacGuffin that the machine had its own mind and took him where he needed to be. It just took you to this week's story. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Until budget requirements said, no, we've got to keep you on Earth, and then got to find more increasing ways of making sure that you can't get off Earth. Until the 10th anniversary, and they went, oh, yeah, you can have a bit more budget now. I'm certainly drawn very much towards science fiction that explores, perhaps not in terms of hard science, but explores some of the problems with time travel or some of the the paradoxes. For example, one of the great paradoxes of, of time travel is, if time travel is real, where are all the time travelers? And there's the possible explanation that yes there are time travelers but they try very hard not to change the past or to interfere with the past because they don't want to affect their present and you have some nice science fiction stories that deal with this the classic i guess being ray bradbury's the sound of thunder with you know hunter going back hunting dinosaurs and accidentally changing the present by stepping on a butterfly but you also have some much weirder ones, and there, there are two of my favourite time travel stories, which are, I guess, thematically linked, but very different. There's Michael Moorcock's story, Behold the Man, where there is this time traveller who decides that he wants to go back to biblical times and meet Jesus, and goes back there and discovers the historical Jesus is this this man who has got all sorts of birth defects, has got learning difficulties, is physically deformed, and is an absolute nobody in his society. And 
then starts to realize that if the version of Jesus that exists in his own time is essential to the culture that he comes from, then he's effectively got to take the place of Jesus and become Jesus in order to ensure the consistency of the present. And, you know, just basically ends up taking Jesus's place all the way up to the crucifixion, just in order to maintain a degree of continuity. And on the other hand, you've got Gary Kilworth's short story, Let's Go to Golgotha, which has time travellers who are going back to witness the crucifixion. And this slow dawning realisation amongst them that the entire crowd that's gathered to watch Jesus being crucified is made up entirely of time travellers. They've just pushed all the locals out. It's, it's just become this huge tourist attraction of all these people who are just there to see Jesus being crucified. And on that note, we'll be back here in a few moments with more about time travel after this short break. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the Tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and today we're looking at time travel. And from films, spoilers here, but Back to the Future is also a time travel story, which you may <laughs> well have heard of. I watched it again a year or two back with the family. It was We were in an Airbnb and it was sat there on the shelf. There weren't too many films there on the shelf. So I, I pulled that one down and was like, should we watch this? And people were like, oh, okay. And it really stands up every time I watch it. It's just great. And then the more you watch it, the more all those little things at the start, every little thing is like resonates and, and has a has a meaning that you don't recognize the first time you see it. But uh, yeah, it's just great. And then that deals with that whole thing of going back and meeting you know, the people that are going to become your parents and all those little things. And they have that device, I think it's in the second one or the third one when they go back to... Um, like the Wild West. Third one. The third one, yeah. And they've got the photographs where things change and fade and newspaper headlines that, that change, don't they? That's in the first one as well, because he, Is it? he keeps seeing the various members of his family disappear in the initial portrait and himself start to fade away until he finally snaps back into the picture when his parents kiss. Right. They use that device all the way through. And that's a really cool device, I think. I mean, we kind of accept that. We, I think in that, we're more forgiving of things with that because it's clearly a more light-hearted approach. Mm. It's not like, oh, this is serious. Everything is factually correct. It's clearly, it's just, you know, it's fun, but at the same time, it deals with time travel in a, an interesting and entertaining way. 
I don't know what you mean by not being serious. I mean, when I get up to eight, eight miles an hour in my old Ford Mondeo, I did indeed <laughs> see some serious shit. I was quite surprised that thing held itself together as long as it did. Yeah, I had a ride in that a few times, Matt. I can attest to that. Yeah, yeah I think Bill and Ted does that even more, playing around with the comedic aspects of time travel. But the way that it also plays with um, some of the paradoxes They'll think of possible solutions to a situation they find themselves in and sort of say, well, okay, yeah, if I'm going to do that, I'd hide so-and-so in that bush over there. And they go over there, and of course it's there because their future selves have gone back and put it there, which is the kind of thing that I think if you did in a game, it would have to be a fairly light-hearted game because... It's got to be such an easy thing to abuse that it's only really good, I think, for comic effect. But it works really well for that film or for those films. I can see it being a bit like a, a luck roll, you know. Have you, or we're going down into the cellar, has anybody got a torch? Well, nobody said they got a torch with them. Do you want to make a luck roll to see if you've got one? Like a similar kind of thing, just using the luck roll to determine... Did you jump back and hide that person in the bush? Or maybe you did. Give me a luck roll. <laughs> I don't know if that would work, but I can see that possibly uh, being a method of, of addressing that. Luck roll equals time travel. Hmm. Have you guys watched the... It, now, it's not The Dark. It's just Dark on Netflix? Nope. No, I haven't. I keep meaning to, but I've not got to it yet. Okay. I mean, I think we have to say we're, we're giving some spoil. I'm not going to give massive spoilers for it. But I mean, it's it's very quickly it, it becomes apparent that oh, actually, this is about time travel. It's a very interesting series, I must say. I think the for me the the journey through it has been more rewarding than the destination. It, it was I found it immensely confusing in the first season. It, within the second episode, I think Lucy got up and went into the next room to get a pad of paper and a pencil just to start <laughs> jotting down like family trees and who was who because oh my god it's um partly because we were watching it in german with english subtitles there is an option to watch it in spoken english but we started with that and i didn't really feel that the voices matched the characters very well and in the final episode i did switch it back to english dialogue and for me yeah it was just a big mismatch between the sound of the voices and the sound of the characters Hmm. Yeah, it deals with time travel in a very interesting way. I think maybe if you guys watch it, we could talk about it on a future show because there's there's a lot to to unpick in it. Yeah, it's certainly been on my list for ages, and I did enjoy the the more recent series by the the same showrunners, which was 1899, which I thought was terrific. Hmm. But unfortunately, has not been renewed for a second series, which is a shame because it it ended on a fantastic note and really could have continued nicely i will just say that after that I, I spoke to my daughter like the next day after lucy had been drawing this big family tree and she's like actually there's a website that does all of that <laughs> so there's a website it's a netflix website and you enter what episode you're on and it only <laughs> gives you information up to that episode so you don't get spoilers no oh, nice and it maps out the whole family tree and you can click on an individual and read their story and who they are and how they're related to the other people. And mm. there's some mind-bending stuff in it and tracking who is who. But I will say by the sort of second and third series, 
that initial confusion did fade because it is about the, the same set of characters throughout for the most part. Yeah, that's a time travel one that is well worth seeing. But I think, yeah, I guess I don't want to get into it without, yeah, I would end up mm. giving spoilers if I talk about it anymore. Going back as well to the idea of paradoxes, one thing that fascinates me in time travel stories is the present that the characters have come from being shaped by the past that they mm. are then creating by going back. The best example of that I can think of, well, maybe not the best example, but one of the most entertaining and accessible examples is the Spanish film from a few years back, well, probably 10 or 15 years back, Time Crimes. Mm. But it's been an element in science fiction for God knows how long. There was a film a few years back which again addressed that quite nicely called Predestination which was based on Robert Heinlein's short story, All New Zombies, which again, I, I, I highly recommend if you want to sort of try to get your head around that causality and how you could use it in fiction and gaming. And I think those things work very well in, or can in certain instances, as we said, in, in films like those work very well. Very hard to work in a game though. The, yeah. the way today is, is because of what you did when you traveled back six months and paid that guy to do this thing and then you you stop this thing happening and that's why today is like today is because players are going to want to subvert that or they do something different is then you're not writing a story you're, you're crafting a story with an interaction of numerous people and you you don't know where that's going to go so it's almost unmanageable in a in a game maybe i'm wrong i mean maybe some games have achieved it but i think when it comes to games, there are probably easier models to use. There's the one that you mentioned before with Back to the Future, where you're effectively making changes to a timeline and seeing the, the ripples and the repercussions. And it's the idea, there is a single timeline, but the changes that you make going back there are reshaping events. And you, know, you end up with things like the grandfather paradox there. Mm. If you go back in time and kill your own grandfather, how the hell did you do that? Because clearly you don't exist. But as an alternative, you've got the many worlds option so mm. that you know, each time you go back and make a change, you're effectively creating a different branching timeline and you've effectively got all these parallel worlds. And then that leads you to potentially a, a different type of science fiction where you can jump between those different timelines and see the different worlds you've created from the changes you've made. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're in a world where your grandfather died when he was 17 or something. And, but you are there and you're mm. going to, you know, the world is going to develop from that point. It's not, there's no contradiction yeah. with the future because it's a different line of story. Well, more to the point that you're from a different set of events. So you're not from this timeline where your grandfather died. You're from a different timeline where he didn't, but now you are in this one where he died. You're not mm. a product of it. You're a visitor there. More recently, there's that great 11-22-63, the uh, Stephen King novel, where, or also known as the miniseries, where it explores what happens if Kennedy survived the assassination that has a more of a case for, I think, Stephen King to get a bit of uh, an ego jerk in by saying, how many other different crossovers can I make with my other material as a result <laughs> of this? But at least was good for, for those of us that like his other books. And like you referred to earlier, Matt, I think a lot of these things that we've just discussed are 
based around time travel. You know, you wouldn't have Back to the Future. If you take time travel out, you haven't got a film, really. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are things that are established properties that then get time travel inserted into them. And it just, I, I, I love it when they do that. Mm-hmm. So we get it in Star Trek. We get it in Harry Potter as well with the time turner mm-hmm. in uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, which is, uh, you know, Hermione's got the, the little time turner. And it's, uh, it's only in that one story, but, you know, that's great. It's a massive part of Cursed Child as well, if you, uh, if you go oh, and see is that. It? In fact, I'd, right. I'd say pretty much the whole plot line is about a time turner in that. Ah, yeah. Some of the standout Star Trek episodes and films are just when they go back in time. Mm. I don't know why, but uh, it just resonates so much more with me. Because slingshotting around the sun is, of course, the way you to travel back in time. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> it, it, it's never worked before, but we're going to make it work in this episode. <laughs> yeah, and that is, I think, one of the things that time travel and media <laughs> hits as a problem, which is, you have to perhaps create these special events or these these special circumstances whereby it only happens once or rarely, just so that it doesn't become so ubiquitous mm. that time is constantly shifting because you've got time travellers jumping around doing shit and creating chaos. One of my favourite moments is when... Um Captain Kirk, isn't he selling his glasses to that like antiques guy? And he's like, well, didn't McCoy give you those? And he's like, well, yeah, but the beauty of it is he will do again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But of course, then Star Trek introduced this temporal war in Enterprise. You know, the idea that there was this battle that was going on through time. And that's something which, again, I think is quite difficult potentially to pull off in the game Mm. i guess it depends how much you're bothered about consistency if you're doing it in the game and you accept the idea that people are going to be jumping around in time changing stuff all the time then you're dealing with the consequences of that and you're perhaps not worried about dealing with trying to keep it all consistent because it's shifting so much then you're not necessarily worried about i guess keeping a change log for the timeline mm. but if you want to see a good example of a you know, much better example than star trek of of how that can work admittedly it's a book that is less about the mechanics of time travel and more about the people involved with it but what i think is a, a fantastic book along those lines is this is how you lose the time war by amal el motar and uh, max gladstone which is a, a short novel that came out a few years back, which I highly recommend for anyone wanting to get their heads around a, how a time war might work. And if you want to see, in my opinion, the best time travel film, which really kind of nails down the science of it, and well, not the science of it, I mean, I don't know what the science of it is, but it has a sense of the science of it actually working and doesn't have those inconsistencies we see in so many other films. Just get graph paper before you even start because I know which film <laughs> yeah. you're going to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's Looper with Bruce Willis. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's Primer, Primer from 2004. And this is just an incredible film mm. anyway. It was made by a guy called Shane Carruth and he made it for $7,000. It's less than an hour and a half long. It's about an hour and 15, an hour and 20. And it's got a beautiful look to it. It's all shot on film. 
he managed to get like film stock for, for cheap prices, I guess, because everybody was going digital. And it's beautifully shot. He does pretty much, he's credited with pretty much everything from the writing to the filming to you know, everything in it. And it's just a bunch of guys in the modern day, well, in the contemporary period when it was made, in the garage doing some science experiments because they were all kind of geeky guys that are into that stuff. And they realised that this little thing they've got... is a superconductor, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're trying to create a superconductor, I think, is it? And, yeah. and they find that the weight of it is changing and it's like growing mould on it and they start looking at it and they're like, well, what's going on with this? And then they realise that they're creating some time loop on this really small scale and they decide that they can extrapolate from that and make these boxes. So you turn the box on and then you go away. So I turn it on now at like three o'clock in the afternoon. I go tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I get in it and I wait and then I get out of it and it's three o'clock right now, Saturday again. So they can't travel back before they turn the box on. So that kind of fixes that problem. It's only from when the, the box is turned on, that's when you can travel back to. But it means that they can turn it on, go and hide in a hotel room, go and get in the box, having like genned up on all the latest stocks and share prices, go back 24 hours and then like make investments and, and make monetary gain. But obviously there's a lot more to it than that and strange things begin to happen. And when you watch it again, which you will about an hour <laughs> later or like the very next day, you will see things in the very first scene that are like, oh, bloody hell, I yeah. did not see that. And like, <laughs> oh, that totally changes what I'm looking at. Um, it's an absolute masterpiece, I think. But I think that limitation there of not being able to go back before the machine was switched on is a good one because, again, these limitations, I think, really make for it. Yeah. There's a fantastic science fiction TV series from a few years back, one of my favourites, which, unfortunately, I don't think really got as much traction as it should have, a, a series called Travellers. It's got, I guess, a, a vaguely similar premise to The Terminator, but but quite different at the same time. The idea is in the far future, there's the survivors of humanity who have endured a whole load of man-made catastrophes and have worked out with the help of this massive artificial intelligence how to send human consciousness back in time almost like Yithians, to basically try to rewrite the timeline in such a way that they can avoid the mistakes that they know of in the past. We never see this far future civilization. Everything we see in the TV series is in the present day. But there's this limitation in it that they can only send minds back to a later time than the last time they sent someone back. So the first traveler they send back I can't remember, was like 10 years before the series starts. And ever since then, every person they send back has got to be later and later on in time. That's a great limitation for a start. But also mm. they get into the ethics of it too, because when they send someone's consciousness back in time, they're possessing someone in our time and basically killing uh, them. Right. They're overwriting that person's memory in a horrible and painful way. 
So what they do is they go through social media that survived from our day, looking for people who are dying, looking for the details of their deaths, and then finding the moments just before that person was due to die, so they can get around the ethical concerns of effectively killing them. One of the protagonists, for example, has taken over this, I think he's an FBI agent, and it's in the first episode, there's some situation and he's basically about to get pushed down an elevator shaft. And right. this traveller from the future comes back, possesses him, overwrites his, his consciousness and manages to avoid that and then basically takes over his life and his identity. But they play around with this concept really nicely. And there's one episode, I can't remember what it's called, which is absolutely brilliant, where they try to prevent this disaster fucked up the first attempt at doing so, and they're sending more and more travellers back to the area around where this disaster is happening. But they've got less and less time to do it each time, because the first ones that, that fucked up, they've basically been the most recent ones, so they can only possess people later and later on in time. So they've got less time to prevent this disaster mm, each mm. time they send someone back. And just the escalating tension of this as it almost feels like a time loop because you're just seeing history getting rewritten each time this happens. But it's just done absolutely fantastically. It's one of the best bits of time travel media I've seen. And that sounds kind of more gameable with that idea of mm. jumping back to people and then, you know, as the time shifts forward, there's a, a limited window into which you can jump into it. Just on the surface, it sounds like something you could almost make a game of. Yeah, and I think this is a kind of time travel that we, we perhaps see in the mythos an awful lot. Mm. It certainly fits with a weirder type of time travel, which is the projection of consciousness through time. Yeah, which is what we see out of Shadow Out of Time, right? With the Ithians. You dropped the, the name of Terminator in there, Scott, and that hadn't even occurred to me. That wasn't even on my list of time travel <laughs> films. But uh, oh, gosh. that's one where I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there is time travel in it. And it is quite important, <laughs> okay. but I hadn't yeah. really, I don't, I don't think of time travel when I think of, of Terminator. But, you know, it is mm. an important element. I just keep thinking that how the series should have stopped after the second film, but. That was just me. Well, things go on and on and on forever. <laughs> the TV programme was quite good. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I didn't see that. No, I've heard good things about it, but the film series just got just terrible yeah. after the second mm. one. I'd argue that the second one wasn't very good either. I like the first what? one, but... <laughs> what a shock. Scott with a bombshell uh, opinion that goes against everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess, ironically, for a, an episode about time travel, we've run out of time. Who would have thought? <laughs> and we're going to have to come back to this, this topic next episode, but we are going to be talking about time loops next time, so it perhaps is appropriate to come back and revisit it then. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. 
thank you to you, first of all, for listening to this podcast and for having listened to the podcast maybe for the last 10 years. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us over the past 10 years. And we have a number of new people to thank by name. Starting off with a thanks to Tommy Knutson. I'll put in the usual disclaimer that if we pronounce or I pronounce your name incorrectly, then please do let us know and uh, we will have another attempt in a future episode. And also thank you very much to Chris Craigie. Aha, and an old friend here. Thank you very much to Lord Mordy. Yes, who had the pleasure of meeting at Necronomicon uh, last year. Oh, nice. And thanks to Dilath Lean. And thank you very much also to, and I hope I get this right, Snivgrits. And thank you very much, finally, to Casper Tybjerg. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you let people know. Whether this means leaving a review somewhere where podcast reviews can be found, or perhaps using tachyon particles to send a review back in time to the, the very earliest days of podcasting, and confuse the hell out of people by reviewing the podcast before it even existed. Or telling those three crazy guys around the mouldy stall in someone's shed, <laughs> you know you're still going to be here in ten years' time. I think going back to those days, just hearing that we have listeners would be enough of a shock. <laughs> well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias for 10 years. <laughs> Until next episode, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.